0: A man is found dead in his hotel room under mysterious circumstances, and he also has very mysterious injuries. The medical examiner and police can't seem to figure out what happened to 55-year-old Greg Flanagan. When they finally do, it turns out the truth is way more bizarre than anyone could have suspected. This week's episode covers multiple unrelated deaths that occurred in hotel rooms around the world and the incredibly unbelievable truths behind them all. What was the cause of Greg Flanagan, Elizabeth Isherwood, and Steve Jupes' tragic and untimely deaths? Come hang out with me while I talk true crime. and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. I love a good hotel room. What's not to love? Clean, fresh linen, a bathtub, free soaps, throw in a free continental breakfast with an unsupervised waffle making station and call it a good time. Unfortunately, what I am going to be talking about today was not a good time for the guests involved. They had no idea when they checked into their hotel rooms, they would never be checking out. The first case I'm going to talk about is Greg Flanagan, a 55-year-old businessman in the oil industry from Louisiana, out on the road, doing his job. Beaumont, Texas, September 15th, 2010. MCM Elegant Hotel. It was a Wednesday evening. Greg Flanagan was a guest in room 348. He was enjoying his evening, lounging on his bed. He had all of his indulgence and paraphernalia around him. He had his cigarettes, a lighter, an ashtray. He had chocolate. Uh, He had a root beer. And in case anyone was wondering, the chocolate was Reese's Crispy Crunchy Bar. For some reason, that was... that was struck me as interesting so I put that in it's always food related with me I don't know why but this evening Greg Flanagan he had his Reese's crispy crunchy bar he had his root beer he had his cigarettes ashtray lighter he had everything around him and he was having a good time Greg was slowly chipping away at his stash of goodies you know all while watching Iron Man 2 in his dark cool air-conditioned hotel room sounds like an amazing time Sounds like a wonderful time. Sounds like a vacation. The next morning, Greg's wife calls his coworkers and she says, hey, I haven't heard from Greg. I'm kind of worried. He calls me every morning and I've been calling him and there's no answer. Can you, can you go check on him? His coworkers look around and they're like, oh yeah, well, yeah, maybe we should because he's not here and, and that's weird. They head on over to the hotel where Greg is staying. They knock on his door. They don't get any answer. Uh, Now they're thinking, hmm, this is very weird. Maybe we should get someone to open this door. So they do. They go and get someone to open the door. And when they get the the staff at the hotel to, to open this door, they find a lifeless Greg Flanagan face down on the carpet by the door. His skin is a bluish gray hue. He has a uh finished cigarette and it's it's still between his two fingers and it's kind of like cupped in that hand's kind of in this like cupped motion and it's under his body as if he died holding this cigarette like it was perfectly in his hand he's face down hand under his body with a cigarette in it that he had been smoking police and ambulance were promptly called When they arrived on the scene, they looked things over and they don't think anything sinister had happened. Greg's room still had all his cash and valuables in it. Apparently, he had a fat stack of $100 bills in his wallet and it wasn't even touched. That big fat stack of Hundies was still there. Nobody took them. There was no signs of forced entry. Nothing was missing. Nothing was askew. This really reminded me of... Bob Saget, because Bob Saget died in his hotel room, and I always wondered what exactly happened there. Because I'm pretty sure they said Bob Saget had some kind of blunt force trauma, yet they couldn't find anything that maybe he was possibly hit by, and there was no sign that a fight had taken place in his hotel room. I don't know. This when I started hearing about this case, I was like, whoa. I started thinking about Bob Saget but back to Greg. So in this case, there was no robbery, no forced entry, all the valuables are there. Greg, he didn't look like he had been in a fight. He didn't look, you know, his knuckles weren't, usually when someone's in a fight, their knuckles get cut up, their hands are bruised, they're, they have black eyes, they got a bloody nose, bloody or broken nose, broken cheekbones, whatever. Greg, no, nothing. Nothing. So at first, they're like, Maybe this was natural causes. Maybe this was a heart attack. Maybe this was a stroke. To figure out if Greg did die of natural causes or something else, his body undergoes an autopsy. And this is what the medical examiner says. The medical examiner, Dr. Tommy Brown, he says there was an obvious abrasion on Greg's left cheek from where he had landed face first on the carpet. No, that was no mystery. But what was mysterious was that the groin area seemed to be affected something terrible. It looked like Greg had been hit in the groin area so hard that there was bruising going from the groin all the way to his right hip. There was a half inch cut on the scrotum accompanied by endemia fluid and the sac was visibly swollen and discolored. Ooh, sounds painful. This injury, it was very odd. Who would have wanted to cause such damage to Greg's groin area? We don't know. This may be very odd, but it still didn't tell Dr. Tommy Brown what killed Greg. The next step in the autopsy was to see what was going on inside of Greg. Was there any injuries to his lungs, heart, liver, kidney, anything like this? Was this a heart attack? Was it a stroke? The findings... When he goes in, it gets even more odd, gets even more odd. There are lacerations seen on the intestines, liver, and stomach. There is a hole in the right atrium of the heart, two broken ribs, and there was also partially digested food that had come out of the intestines like it was ripped out somehow. The intestines was ripped open and food came out. And there was more blood than to be expected when the chest cavity was opened initially. This all means that there was a lot of internal damage. A lot. But the question is, how was it all cost? How was this all cost? The only bruising is the groin and the hip area. Dr. Tommy Brown believed that Greg must have been beaten slash crushed to death. So beaten and or crushed to death. He must have been kicked in the groin and also received an incredibly hard blow to the chest. According to these injuries, Greg wouldn't have lived longer than 30 seconds after whatever had happened to him. Greg's death was not labeled as a natural death, but as a homicide. My first thought was, How would a blow to the chest cause a hole in the heart? And also, if he was alive when he received the blows to the chest, why wasn't there any soft tissue damage on the surface? If he was alive and someone hit him very hard in the chest, you would see bruising. Blood vessels would break. I'm sure police were asking the same questions, trying to piece this mystery together, and it was just... A real jigsaw puzzle. Detective Scott Apple was assigned to this case and he couldn't make sense of the autopsy report. In fact, he called Dr. Tommy Brown and he was like, What the fuck is this? What am I reading? What's happening here? Dr. Brown he was like, Yeah, it's weird. Figure it out. He also said that these injuries are usually common with crash victims or someone who had been crushed by a large object, as if that was gonna help the detective. How could Greg have been beaten to death, yet have no bruising on his face or arms or legs, just his groin, uh, and Greg didn't look beat up. There was no blood anywhere except for inside Greg's body that had, I'm assuming he was internally bleeding, but no bloody nose, no bloody fists. What happened? And if he was crushed by a large object, Where was the object? If Greg was crushed elsewhere, then how did he get into his room? Nothing was making sense. The report stated he would have only had 30 seconds to live, meaning the attack would have happened there or Greg's body was moved there after the attack. Detective Apple had asked people in nearby rooms if they had heard any fighting coming from Greg's room and everyone said no. There seemed to be no sign Of a brutal beating happening in greg's room there was a small incident the night greg died didn't really seem related and that was greg had called reception that evening to let them know a breaker must have blown while he was using the microwave this power outage caused by the breaker being switched was fixed by 8 30 p.m when a maintenance guy came into greg's room and switched the breaker back. Not only Greg's room was affected by this but also the rooms under his and the rooms across the hall and beside his had shorted out because of this but it was fixed in no time. When the detective looked into the maintenance guy he saw the maintenance guy had a sex offender record. This raised red flags. The detective theorized perhaps this maintenance guy had unsavory plans for Greg and the injuries to his groin may have been caused by a screwdriver. Yikes. This theory didn't last long and the maintenance guy was cleared. Detective Apple questioned a group of guys who were all staying at the hotel for work, thinking maybe there had been a fight between these guys and and Greg, but they were also cleared. Their room was right beside Greg's room. It was room 349. Greg was 348. Detective Apple, he had a theory that maybe when the breaker blew that night and the power went out that those guys were all drinking in in a, possibly one of those rooms and they got mad and they went to ask Greg what happened and then something led to something else and then that turned into a fight. But upon questioning, apparently they were all very nice and polite men who knew nothing about Greg's death. These men were kind of, They were living there for a while. They worked for the oil company as electricians, and they had a few more months of a job left and would be continuing to stay at the hotel for a while. They weren't going anywhere. They even gave Detective Apple their business cards, and they were very curious to know more about this strange death. They were not giving this detective any sort of anything to worry about. They weren't going anywhere. They gave their identification, they gave their phone numbers, they were very helpful. So Detective Apple was like, I doubt they had anything to do with this. And no evidence could be found that a fight or an argument or even a scuffle had happened in Greg's room that night. He did look into Greg's character and found that he was a very decent man. No affairs, nothing illegal, no addictions, no gambling, no enemies, all that meant no leads. The case starts to get chilly. It's not fully cold, but it's not exactly moving along anymore. Two months later in November, Greg's family, they try to coax information from the public with a $50,000 reward, but this yields no results. Enter private detective Ken Brennan, former DEA and Long Island police officer turned private eye. Greg Flanagan's wife Susie hires Ken Brennan to look into this case. This guy sounds like a badass private detective you see in movies. He is a character. He has an authentically charming, thick New York accent. He's tough as nails, and he swears like a sailor. He's dropping the F-bomb like you wouldn't believe. Ken Brennan, he teams up with Detective Apple, and the two seem to really hit it off. They reviewed all the information, and Ken Brennan thought, this is very solvable. He just wanted to talk to anyone surrounding the situation, meaning that night or Greg himself. So he's talking to Greg's wife, family, co-workers, hotel staff, guests. Basically, he was re-questioning everybody. This was all new to him and he wanted to put his own foundation on this, so to speak. From talking to Susie, he discovered that when Greg was found that morning, dead in the hotel room, the people that found him said the room was very warm which Susie found odd because she knows Greg likes to crank the air conditioning. Well, this starts to paint a timeline for the private detective, and he believes that when the microwave flipped the breaker, it turned off the air con because there was a power outage, which meant the air con switched off. The breaker was fixed by 8.30 p.m. Brennan believes Greg forgot to turn the air con back on when the electricity turned back on which meant he must have been killed before he noticed the room was getting hot. This means Greg was killed shortly after 8:30 p.m. Again the maintenance guy was totally cleared and Greg was alive when the maintenance guy left his room at 8 30. Because when I was reading about this case and I was going through all of my source information, I was thinking, yeah, it's got to be the maintenance guy. He was the last one in to, to see Greg alive, you know. And I never read why the maintenance guy was cleared, but he was cleared very adamantly. Um, I'm very intrigued as to what his, his alibi was because it must have been something really undeniable. In this situation, he is technically the last person to see Greg alive as far as the investigation goes. So what, what could his alibi be that's so rock solid? I, I'm, I'm not sure, but it was strong enough that police and the private detective, they weren't looking at him anymore. This maintenance guy cleared. Ken Brennan now turned his attention to the electricians. He really thought they must have something to do with Greg's death. Apple was telling him, nah, they all seemed really nice. They were very helpful. I talked to them. It's not them. It's it's not them, okay? But Ken, he won't drop it. So before Ken seeks out the electricians for questioning, he wants to get better insight on this autopsy ruling. He wanted to fully understand how it is that Greg was beaten to death, but just his groin was bruised. Also... How it was that nothing in their room was disturbed in such a way that would show that a brutal beating had happened. Private Detective Brennan and Detective Apple head on over to see Dr. Brown, the man who conducted the autopsy. Dr. Brown theorizes that the small cut in the scrotum could have been caused by a person wearing steel toe boots and kicking Greg in the groin, which also caused the bruising. He also explains how this could very well be a case where Greg was beat to death and that's what he sees in his autopsy findings. The thing is, though, is that Ken Brennan doesn't see that in the crime scene. The crime scene and the autopsy report are telling him two different things. Ken Brennan interviews not only the electricians who were there in the hotel when Greg died, but also co-workers of theirs who weren't even there at all. He is doing this because these guys all work together. They all know each other. And if someone had anything to do with this, then someone would have said something and the word would have gotten around by now. It had been months and months since Greg's death and the electricians, they had moved on from that specific job. Uh, Brennan is sure They have all been drinking together and hanging out with each other at bars and on work sites and talking to one another. And that's exactly how secrets get leaked. Secrets he wanted to know. As he's questioning this one guy who hadn't been questioned before because he wasn't there. It was a a guy who works with the electricians on job sites, but not on that job site in Beaumont, Texas. I believe he was a foreman. It is possible that every worksite has different workers at it, but they must all know each other. They must have all worked with each other on a job site over here or on a job site over here, and it's probably this community of these workers, and they, they all kind of know each other, but they don't always work with each other. So Apple and Brennan, they ask this foreman, have you heard anything about the death of that guy at the Elegant Hotel? And this guy says, oh, is this about that gun going off in a boarding house? And Detective Apple tells him, no, like, no, we're not, we're not talking about that. What, what even is that? We don't know. We're talking about the guy that got into a fight at the Elegant Hotel. And the guy being questioned tells him, I've never heard of that situation before. I never heard of anybody dying, getting into a fight. Now, I, ne- I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't hear about that. While Detective Apple is thinking that this foreman must be getting things confused, Brennan, he's sitting back and he's got this sly look on his face. This odd little tidbit leads Private Detective Brennan back to the crime scene. This time he is looking for bullet holes in the walls. But Detective Apple, he's thinking, this isn't a shooting situation. The guy got some rumors confused. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But Ken Brennan, he had a hunch. As the detectives are scoping the scene in the room Greg was found in, they notice an odd impression on the wall. At first, they try to rule it out as an indentation from the door handle hitting the wall when the door opens. But guess what? The handle doesn't hit there. They tried, it missed. Next, they go to room 349, just on the other side of the wall, to see what's on the other side of this odd indentation. And would you look at that? A bullet hole that's been filled in with toothpaste. Well, 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 what's all this then? When the toothpaste is removed, they shine a trajectory laser through it. It lines up perfectly perfectly. To where Greg was sitting on his bed, eating all of his snacks, smoking his cigarettes, watching a movie, enjoying the air conditioning after work. That trajectory laser goes right to where he was sitting. And they know that because all of his snacks, everything was laid out on the bed. You could see where he was sitting and where all of his stuff was. Could this mean that Greg was shot? What about the autopsy findings though? They say he was beat to death. There was no bullet found. There was no bullet hole. Something's just not adding up. Unfortunately, and this is a huge unfortunately, Greg's body had been cremated, which means there was no possibility of exhuming the body. But they did have photos of the autopsy. They go back to Dr. Brown and they tell him their theory. Dr. Brown, he cannot believe what they are saying he is positive there was no bullet wound and no bullet found he's like I examined everything inside of him I examined his heart I examined all of the organs I never found a bullet and they all decide to look at the photos like well let's look at the photos and as much as Dr. Brown didn't want to admit he was wrong he ended up doing so the bullet entered through the scrotum. Since the skin there is loose, it folded over the bullet hole looking like a laceration or a small cut. Once the bullet entered Greg's body, it went up through the intestines liver and stomach causing that undigested food to spill out the bullet also went through the right atrium of Greg's heart causing that hole and his immediate death if I had to guess I'd say the bullet was lodged in his heart while he was cremated but they said that cremation gets so hot it would even incinerate a bullet The next thing the detectives want to do is find the men who were in room 349. These men had previously been questioned, actually. It was two of the electricians, but neither of them had ever said anything about a gunshot that night. The first guy they question is Tim Steinmetz. Tim was now back in Wisconsin. He had been there for at least seven months. He thought the hotel death was a thing of the past until the detectives show up to talk to him on June 1st, 2011. It was a game of cat and mouse, but eventually Tim admits that a gun had gone off accidentally in their room the night before Greg was found dead. They even get Tim to call the guy that accidentally discharged the weapon, Lance Mueller. The detectives were listening. Tim basically gets his co-worker Lance to admit that the gun went off that night and that they had lied to police in their previous statements. Damn, that's some good detective work. All the detectives knew was that one foreman had heard that a gun went off in a boarding house with no specific detail and then they find a bullet hole in the ho- hotel room wall and they... Have no idea when that hole was actually put there. They have no way of even knowing that. And now, with those little tidbits of information they have a full-on confession, basically. It would have been so easy for this case to have never have been solved, and yet, here we are. And Tim was eager to go along with detective plans because they had actually threatened him with jail time. They got him to sign a written statement that said nothing about a gun being discharged, and then when he did, they were like, you are gonna go to jail because we know you lied. And he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, I'll tell you everything. A gun did go off, and then... All of a sudden, they get Tim to to call Lance, and then Lance is like, didn't know the detectives were listening, and yeah, he admits to it. But what are the finer details of what happened? Well, detectives questioned another guy after they got the story out of Tim, And this guy, he says the same thing. Trent Pisano recalls that night in the hotel flawlessly. He said the three of them, him, Tim, and Lance, were all drinking in room 349, which was Tim and Lance's room, uh, after work that evening. At one point in the evening, Lance had asked Trent, hey, will you go to my truck, grab my gun, grab my whiskey? And Trent said, yeah. (laughs) I mean, what else do you say to that? grabbing that combination. Grab my whiskey and my gun. What could ever go wrong with that pairing? Trent brings back a bottle of whiskey and a gun. I believe this could be seen on hotel security camera as well. The gun couldn't be seen specifically, but the guys going out to their vehicles and then back into the hotel that was seen on security. So now we have Lance, who had been drinking beer previously to getting his whiskey and gun, and now he has whiskey and a handgun in his hotel room with two other men in the room, With him and uh, people in the rooms around him, in the hotel rooms. Lance, he thinks he's being funny. And he's pointing that gun at his friends. And he's having a laugh. He thinks this is hilarious, pointing a loaded gun at his friends. And they're not sharing in this laugh. They don't think this is funny. They're actually pissed off about this. And Lance, he points the gun at Trent, who is sitting on the bed. And the gun accidentally goes off. Just missing Trent. Suddenly, this joke wasn't so funny to Lance anymore either. Trent actually thought that he had been hit by the bullet. That's how close it came to him. That's how much this gun was pointed at him. He's looking around his body trying to see if he's bleeding or if he's been shot. But then they noticed that the bullet hole is in the wall. And they all knew that that bullet went through the wall into the next room. And yet nobody went and checked on the room that the bullet went into Trent he is pissed off that he was just nearly killed so he leaves he's like fuck you Lance you're a stupid asshole and I'm out of here and Lance he's busy wrapping up his gun and he goes outside and he puts it back in his truck so that's where Trent's story ends that's all this Trent guy knows because he left but Tim said him and Lance then went to the bar in the hotel, the hotel bar. And when they arrived later that night, they swore they could hear someone coughing in the room next to them, the room that the bullet went into. So they just assumed that nobody was hit or hurt by that bullet. They, were, they assumed everybody was alive and well in there. Now this coughing, it's never explained, but I believe either... They're lying or I more so believe that somebody was walking past in the hallway and coughed and they thought it was coming from that room. So the next morning after this whole gun went off situation, the next morning, Tim and Lance, they see police in the hotel at the room next door and they see a body being gurneyed out. And that's when they thought, oh, no. And Lance is thinking, oh, did, you know, did I kill that person? And Tim's thinking, did Lance kill that person? But then police and the news are reporting saying that the guy was beat to death, not shot. So at first they thought the gun might have had something to do with the death. But then they thought maybe it was just a crazy coincidence. They didn't know what to think. Now the detectives have the full story, two witnesses, and phone recorded evidence of Lance admitting to firing the gun that night and lying in his statement to police. So the only thing left to do now is to talk to Lance. Before the detectives could reach out to Lance, he got drunk and called them. Apparently, he wanted to make a statement, but the detectives didn't allow him to make the statement while intoxicated, and he was instead told to call his attorney So he got drunk and he calls detectives and he's like, I'm going to tell you everything. And they're like, whoa, okay, call your attorney, Lance, you're drunk. In July of 2011, Lance Mueller was arrested. In September of 2012, he pled no contest to reckless manslaughter and criminally negligent manslaughter. On October 29th, 2012, which is two days before Halloween, Lance Mueller was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Because he had pled no contest, there was no trial. That's why it went straight to sentencing. I did read in one of my sources that had Lance came forward immediately after Greg's death, things may have turned out a lot different for him. A detail that made me go from, oh, Lance had no idea he had killed a person to okay he did know was that he contacted a lawyer after the accidental discharge of the gun that night but not only that but he gave this lawyer the gun that he had accidentally discharged that night in the hotel and the lawyer had it locked in his safe so apparently lance had been talking to a lawyer about this whole thing even before police were on to him like right after this had happened If Lance didn't really think that he killed someone, if he thought that him accidentally firing the gun had nothing to do with killing somebody, then why get a lawyer? And then why give the lawyer the gun? And then why talk about that whole thing with your lawyer? Like he'd be paying this lawyer a ton of money for all of this legal advice on something that he doesn't think he did? Like, I don't think so. Come on. It's just... Yeah, yeah. this whole case is just absolutely crazy. Who would have ever thought that a man chilling on his bed after work in a hotel room would be killed in 30 seconds and have no idea what was happening? This makes me feel differently about hotel rooms now. I guess you just never know who's swinging a gun around in the next room. It's very unsettling. Private detective Ken Brennan is appalled whenever the argument of it was an accident comes up. To him, an accident is taking off your gun, placing it on a table, and it discharges around. That's an accident to him. But to be drinking, waving around your gun, pointing it at people as a joke, and being so careless with a dangerous weapon is no accident. To Ken, that's murder. This next case I'm going to talk about is again, also a death occurring in a hotel. But for this one, we are heading to Wales. 60-year-old Elizabeth Isherwood was heading to her and her ex-husband's timeshare for her last day before they sold it. She decided to go alone because everybody she asked was busy. Elizabeth and her ex-husband had a 30-year marriage, but they had divorced because Elizabeth had come out as gay. Her and her ex-husband, they had ended the marriage very well and they were still friends. There was no bad blood there. It was a very amicable divorce. Elizabeth had also ended her career as a police officer when she came out as gay. She changed her entire life. Her and her ex-husband, they had both been police officers and that's how they actually met all those years ago. Everyone said that Elizabeth was very fit, very athletic, and she loved to play golf. Here we had Elizabeth, 60 years old, the picture of health, living her best life, taking a vacation by herself. What could go wrong? Elizabeth arrives at the timeshare on Saturday evening. Multiple sources say she went for a swim and then she went to her room. That Saturday would have been September 22nd, 2018. A week later, her naked body was discovered in an airing closet in the timeshare Elizabeth was staying in on the day she was to check out. Her body was discovered by maintenance workers who were sent to check out a possible burst pipe as a water leak had been reported. This timeshare place is huge. It's called Plas Talgarth Health and Leisure Club. It's situated on a lot of acreage. It's lots of outdoor exploring. Uh, It's located in or extremely near the Snowdonia National Park in Wales. When I looked up pictures of this place, I immediately wanted to go. It looks so amazing if you're into hiking in the outdoors. It's just absolutely stunning. I can 100% see why Elizabeth owned a timeshare there. Just Google Snowdonia National Park in Wales and just see what I'm talking about. But since this is a resort style accommodation, investigators are wondering, didn't anyone hear anything? The following Monday, that Elizabeth had checked in which was the 24th there was a room near her room and they said that they did hear banging but they thought it was building maintenance when the banging stopped at 5 5 p.m they decided it must be maintenance and they didn't report it or look into it and apparently had it gone on past 5 p.m then they were going to call and be like hey is there maintenance going on like there's a lot of banging we're on vacation here like that's really not cool but it wasn't maintenance when Elizabeth's death was investigated this is what is believed happened the Saturday Elizabeth checked in she dropped her bags on on the floor she opened them up she didn't put anything away because she thought she had all week to do that and then she went for a swim when Elizabeth got back from her swim eventually she went to bed and then she woke up early Sunday morning when it was still dark she must have somehow mistook the airing room for some something else or she went in there for some reason. Some people say that maybe she mistook it for the bathroom or they say maybe she mistook it for the bedroom coming out of the bathroom but either way when she went into this airing room when the door closed behind her the handle broke off and she was locked inside. Before I go any further I just want to clarify an airing room is a small room meant for hang drying clothes and apparently this is very common in Wales and in England and Ireland and in, and in Scotland homes apparently uh, it's basically like a, a closet but a little bit bigger you could put a drawing rack in there and hang the clothes and that night Elizabeth found herself in this airing room the door closed behind her and then the handle broke off and she was stuck and then Elizabeth then found herself naked and entrapped in this airing room In her attempt to escape, she grabbed a piece of copper piping to use as a tool to open the door. Instead of helping her, it drenched her in water because the pipe, it was a water pipe. There was water running through this pipe. She broke it off and then water sprayed everywhere. So then she was covered in water. Now she's freezing cold. She's wet. She's trapped in this closet. She has no clothes and there's nobody there to hear her banging on this door. There's nobody to open the door. There's nobody to get anyone to open the door. She just has no help. She's on her own. She did keep trying when she was locked in this closet. She ripped through one of the walls, but on the other side was a brick wall. Uh, So then she went to the other side and she started breaking through that wall which I believe it was maybe drywall and when she got to the she broke through that and when she broke through that it didn't look like she could go any further so it's theorized that she was so exhausted that she stopped but the thing is is had she have kept going it was just a picture that was hanging on the wall on the other side all she had to break through was this thin piece of canvas and she could have crawled out the wall it's just so sad Eventually, Elizabeth was subject to hypothermia, and she died in the closet. The coroner couldn't give an exact time of death, but it is speculated that she died that Monday, which would mean the banging that the other guests heard was Elizabeth, and they claim that that stopped about 5.05 p.m. It wasn't until her checkout date that her body was discovered by maintenance because of that broken water pipe that Elizabeth had broken a week earlier. The cause of death was labeled as accidental. It was a combination of all that bad luck that killed Elizabeth. I do have a theory on what happened. So I don't think Elizabeth was going to the bathroom like a lot of people speculate. I think maybe she was looking for extra linens or pillows and she went into that airing room to see if there was any extra pillows or blankets or anything and the door closed behind her. This was her timeshare. I'm assuming she had been there many times before. How could she not know? where the toilet is or, or what door led to her bedroom. Also, one source said that the airing closet was inside the bathroom's ensuite. So wouldn't that mean she was already in the bathroom? How could she get lost looking for the bathroom when she's already in the bathroom? I don't know. That's just my thought on that. As for the detail of Elizabeth being naked in that cupboard, everything that I read, uh, the, the those articles said that She had been sleeping and then she got up and then she got locked in this closet and she was naked. So I'm just assuming that she was sleeping in the nude. This story though, it just, it's, it just seems really bizarre to me. She has all of this bad luck. It just gives very demonic or like paranormal activity or something like that. Like something seems really askew here. There was talk of a lawsuit, but I couldn't find anything about whether or not that went through. I don't know where that's uh, standing. It is it is such a terrifying death uh, for Elizabeth just getting up in the middle of the night and then all of a sudden you're just in a dangerous situation it, when you should be in an extremely safe place. I mean, You're basically in your bedroom sleeping and then all of a sudden you're trapped in a closet covered in water and then you get hypothermia and die it's terrifying it is just there's so many terrifying elements involved in all of that I do have one more case I would like to go over before wrapping up this week's episode and this one takes place in Paris France June 2006 40 year old Stephen Jupe and his partner they were in Paris catching a Robbie Williams concert the couple was from East Sussex in England, therefore were staying in a hotel. These concert tickets had actually been a Christmas gift to his partner from him. The concert went well, they returned to their hotel room and they went to bed. The next morning, Stephen woke up and said he was gonna take a shower and then they should go up for lunch or perhaps go see some Parisian sights. Stephen gets in the shower. Getting in the shower is such an everyday occurrence. Who would ever think something is going to go wrong. Moments later Steven's partner can hear him screaming and she runs in to see what's wrong. What she sees is something I'm sure she will never forget. Stephen had both hands on the shower rail and she didn't know what was happening so She reaches in and she turns the water off. She's thinking that the water is very, very hot and perhaps that's why he's screaming and and acting the way that he is. So she immediately turns the water off. Steven, he's shaking and he looked very odd and he managed to muster the words, don't touch me, don't touch me, electric. His partner did try to touch him though, and in doing so she felt electricity shoot up her arms and she had no choice but to let go. She then ran to the phone and told the staff of the hotel that her husband was having a heart attack. By the time she got back into the bathroom, the electricity must have lost its connection because she was able to try and perform CPR. Due to the unfortunate position he was in, she could not move him to perform CPR properly. By the time emergency services arrived, Stephen Jupe was pronounced dead. So what the hell happened to Steven? It is believed that dodgy electrical connections caused the death of Stephen Jupe. There was a light fixture above the shower and let's just say it was wired very badly. The housing of that fixture had become live with an astounding 230 volts of electricity. Stephen must have somehow moved the shower curtain pole near this fixture or even touched it, and that's when the electricity went through the pole and through Stephen. Coroner Veronica Hamilton-Dealy said this to the Argus, quote, the circumstances were perfect for the opportunistic current to use him as a means to earth itself, electrocuting him as it did so, unquote. By perfect, she is referring to the water, the dodgy electrical work, and the shower uh, curtain rod. It was just, it was just the, it was just the perfect nightmare storm. His death was ruled electrocution. What I don't understand is how he moved this pole close to the light. Who was in the shower moving around the curtain rod? I don't. I just don't. I just find this hard to imagine. I'd really like to see a setup of the shower to understand this better. I couldn't find a picture of it. I'm thinking maybe he was a very tall man and he grabbed the shower curtain rod and maybe that moved it like a centimeter closer or maybe it came off when he grabbed it and it kind of like, I don't know, came off and, and headed towards the ceiling and it just got very close, like the coroner was saying, very close or even touched. That light fixture, and even if it got close, the electricity jumped from that fixture to the pole and then through Stephen. It just seems like a, a scene from Final Destination. It's just so terrifying. The coroner did explain it like this quote, Mr. Jupe was electrocuted in circumstances where he was holding the shower curtain pole while showering, standing in the bath. The pole became live because it moved and had come into contact with or into very close proximity with the end shield of a wall-mounted lighting fixture or lumineer, unquote. And I pulled that quote again from the Argus, which I have linked. Stephen's partner must have been absolutely mortified in that same article I just referred to. She described Steven as looking up at her with no expression on his face when she returned to the shower to perform CPR after calling for help. And that is just very sad and just very scary. I wouldn't be surprised if there was a a hefty lawsuit over this one. That wraps up this week's episode. Those were all very shocking deaths that happened in hotels. To think you can just be doing something like relaxing on your bed after work, looking for linens or showering, and then all of a sudden you're in a nightmare that ends your life. Just terrifying. I hope all the families got justice in every one of these cases. If you're feeling supportive, please rate five stars on Spotify or Apple Podcast. Maybe even leave a nice comment or review if you are feeling up to it. If you'd like, you can get weekly updates on TikTok and Instagram at hellno underscore a true crime podcast send me an email about something spooky, eerie, paranormal, or just downright dangerous and it could be read on the podcast during the Halloween special. Fact and fiction, long or short, just let me know who to give credit to and if it's real or not. The email to send those to are hellnopodcast at outlook.com. Thanks for listening and see you next week.